Welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program, and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background, having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities and international law, and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare, and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank, False Claims Act, whistleblower claims, which remain under seal. Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas. Currently, she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee and the co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities, Second Edition, as well as a co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs, and What Are International Business Considerations? She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25, and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. Ms. Rose is an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We'll address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available from BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available on the side or upper panel of your screen. So Rachel, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for joining us again uh, today here at First Healthcare Compliance. Thank you so much. Catherine, thank you. And thank you, First Healthcare Compliance, for having me. It's always a pleasure for me to collaborate with you on a variety of healthcare regulatory topics. And as our title slide showed, Today, I'm going to be discussing HIPAA compliance for business associates. 
Because some of today's content relates to COVID and obviously regulatory issues, it's important to note two things. First, the information presented is not meant to constitute legal advice. You need to consult attorney for advice on a specific situation. And secondly, the information in this presentation is time sensitive. As we all know right now, the legal landscape and regulatory landscape are very fluid and dynamic. So I would encourage all participants to visit the relevant government websites, whether it's state or federal for updates. So today I'm going to begin with some key headlines and then transition into HIPAA and COVID as that is an item that is of importance not only for covered entities, but also for business associates and subcontractors. Then I'm gonna delve into particular items that business associates need to be aware of in order to be compliant and mitigate their risk. From there, we'll delve into some risk mitigation techniques and then we'll end with some takeaways and questions. So this is one of my favorite slides because even though HIPAA has been out since 1996, I'm still in awe at how many emails and contracts and articles that I see where HIPAA is spelled wrong. So our HIPAA compliance program made great progress last year. We finally managed to get everyone to spell HIPAA correctly. And although this is somewhat comical, I will note that it is very important to have HIPAA spelled correctly as well as putting the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996 in your contract so that there's no ambiguity because as we all know, there are different acronyms and heaven forbid there is an acronym that is close to HIPAA, which is spelled H-I-P-P-A and that could in fact lead to contractual and legal disputes. So a couple of headlines that I wanted to bring to your attention. The first one is the recent fine that was assessed by the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights Against Lifespan Health System Affiliated Covered Entity. Now, this is a not-for-profit health system which is based in Rhode Island. And not only did they enter into a settlement for over $1 million, which is not inexpensive, even in light of it being a rather large entity, and especially in light of the COVID landscape right now. But they also had to implement a corrective action plan to settle potential violations of the privacy rule and the security rule related to the theft of an unencrypted laptop. Now, a couple of items that are worth noting here. First, Lifespan Corporation, is a parent company and then it has a subsidiary company which is a business associate. That gets us into the different nuances that covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors need to be aware of because it's imperative to define the type of relationship that you have 
within your organizational documents. And I have clients where we have, in fact, put in place business associate agreements between a parent company and various business associates because they were in fact business associates of the parent company and yet the information was being either created, received, maintained, or transmitted between those two separate corporate entities. The other area to look at is what's known as a hybrid entity and that would be an entity where they have one division, for example, that has covered entity status, and then they might have another arm which makes it a business associate or a division, but they're not distinct corporate entities. So again, how one classifies the relationship and the type of entities that they are is imperative in terms of an accurate business associate agreement. This reportable breach actually stems back to April 21st of 2017. And for those of you who, who have ever gone through an HHS OCR, I call it a love letter. When they send uh, entities or persons a letter saying that we've had a reported breach, you now need to respond. And I have represented a variety of companies and sole proprietorships, for example, with alleged breaches. And the time it takes to resolve something can range from a few months to a few years. And OCR really does take into account a lot of factors. And it's important that you hire good counsel to represent you if you get one of these letters from HHS OCR. So what's an important way here is that if we go back to the fall through December, I'll say September through December of 2019, and we look at what the monetary penalties issued by HHS were for, those were more curtailed to privacy rule violations, whereby a patient asked for their medical records and they were not given to them either as the complete designated record set, or there was one instance of a hospital in Florida where it was a pregnant woman and they did not provide the medical records associated with the fetus, and they were fined. HHS gave them one opportunity to, to get things right, and then they closed that initial case, the covered entity did not do it right. And so what happened there was HHS said, we gave you a pass, we tried to educate you. Now this individual has a lawyer who's filing for this. We don't have a choice now. And it's unfortunate that entities, whether it's a covered entity, a business associate, or a subcontractor does not listen to what HHS is saying. And I know when I've represented clients before, HHS, you really have to show that you have taken corrective action steps, that you have been very forthcoming, and that you've been cooperative in the investigation. 
And that can really help the client in terms of the fine and the corrective action plan. So those are just some things to bear in mind. Another issue to really hone in on related to the lifespan breach is that it's amazing to me that in 2017, people are still walking around with unencrypted laptops, unencrypted smartphones, unencrypted tablets, or unencrypted USB drives. This is an area that HHS has honed in on for years. This is nothing new. And since technology has evolved, so have the prices dropped. One can go and purchase, for example, BitLocker. And what you can do is download it and it encrypts your laptop and it's very reasonably priced. And you can check the box during your annual risk analysis that all of your laptops are in fact encrypted. It's important to note that data needs to be encrypted both at rest and in transit. And typically it's a 256-bit encryption unless you're dealing with Department of Defense and other more classified individuals protective health information you really need to look at the NIST standards and the department of defense standards and make sure that the encryption that is being applied meets that standard which is actually higher than a 256 bit so those are just some things to bear in mind and this is an easy way to mitigate risk is to make sure you have your bring your own device policies in place, that you have someone who's checking the bring your own device policies to make sure that the encryption is flipped on, or now iPhone, for example, is automatically encrypted. So depending on the version of the phone, you may have to flip the switch or the version of the tablet, but at least it is available. I have used Macs for years, and I'm very comfortable with Apple products, but one of the reasons that I am and have been is because they have always had a mechanism to encrypt my laptop right off the bat with their Vault software, Vault, V-A-U-L-T software, and then their iPhones and iPads as well. So at least I know that I'm doing my part because lawyers are business associates or subcontractors and per our rules of professional responsibility and the American Bar Association's model rules, we now have to be knowledgeable about technology and the different laws that our clients operate in so that we are meeting those safeguards and those standards as well. The next item I wanted to hone in on is, as I mentioned, COVID is in full effect, and everyone who's on this webinar knows that. The FBI indicated that in April, cyber attacks increased during uh, April over 400%. This isn't surprising given that whenever there is chaos, that's when criminals attack, whether it's a cyber criminal or another type of criminal. People were so focused on COVID that they really weren't looking at their cybersecurity probably as closely as they should. And what's unfortunate there is, as I'll go into later on in the presentation, in the February 2020 HHS bulletin, there was nothing that said that you can 
let your guard down on the technical, administrative, and physical safeguard requirements under the security rule as either a covered entity, a business associate, or a subcontractor. Now you look at other laws, state laws, for example, in Texas, we have House Bill 300, which has been in effect since September 1st of 2012. Our definition of a covered entity, which we'll delve into, is much broader and, in fact, not only encompasses the three buckets under federal HIPAA, but any person who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. So the potential liability there is very, very significant. So let's delve into HIPAA and COVID. So first and foremost, who is under the legal umbrella? And I'm going to begin with federal HIPAA, and that's Public Law 104-191, and that was passed in August of 1996. And here we see three main buckets. We have covered entities, which are further subdivided into healthcare providers, health plans, and healthcare clearinghouses. From there, a covered entity is in privity of contract with a business associate. And between those two entities, a business associate agreement is required. Then you have subcontractors who are in privity of contract with a business associate, and a business associate agreement is required there as well. You just heard me mention Texas Health Bill 300, and I need to reemphasize the different definition of a covered entity, because in Texas, again, that encompasses any person who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. And that was codified in our Texas Health and Safety Code, as well as the Business and Commerce Code. Finally, we need to mention the Federal Trade Commission, because the Federal Trade Commission has their own breach notification law, which I'll get to in a moment. And basically, it fills the gap, if you may, of the federal HIPAA definitions listed above. So anyone who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information may still have a reporting obligation. And the primary purpose of the Federal Trade Commission is to, in fact, protect consumer rights and consumers. So one can imagine that the exploitation of protected health information would definitely fall under that umbrella. And administrative law judges, as well as district courts across the United States, have held that the Federal Trade Commission does have the authority to enforce that under the Federal Trade Commission Act. So here's a little bit of legislative history. We know that HIPAA passed in 1996. From there, we know that the last part of the privacy rule, or the final privacy rule, as I call it, was published in the Federal Register on August 14th of 2002. The privacy rule initially was published in December of 2000 with an effective date of January of 2001. And not surprisingly, as things continued to be implemented and some of the kinks were worked out, we then had this final privacy implementation. 
The security rule was published in the Federal Register on February the 20th of 2003. However, the effective date of the implementation was not until 2005. So there was a ramp up period for covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors to get in line. And ironically, the privacy rule Federal Register citations do in fact specifically state covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors. So that terminology is not new by any means. We jump ahead to 2009, and this is where we have the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act. Why is that important? For a couple of reasons, because this is really where we see meaningful use come into play for those of you whose organizations have gone through that process to apply for and receive meaningful use incentive payments. Next, we have the breach notification rule, and then we have the privacy and security proposed regulation, and finally, the 2013 omnibus rule, and that's found at 78 Federal Register 5566. It was, in fact, published on January the 25th of 2013 with two different effective and compliant dates. What's important about the omnibus rule is it really honed in on liability expressly for not only covered entities with HIPAA breaches, but also business associates and subcontractors. Before, a lot of business associates said, yeah, well, it's kind of there, it's kind of implied, but there's nothing really in a final rule that says that yet. So that's important. Related to that are the fines, and that also relates to the breach notification rule. And what's important to note is that in April of 2019, there was a revision to the penalties that could be assessed. And for those of you who are familiar with the penalty structure, basically there are four tiers, tier one through tier four with Tier 1 being the most benign and Tier 4 really being intentional and criminal. And that's really where you see the heaviest fines being issued. There was no change to Tier number 4. There was, however, a change to Tier 1, Tier 2, and Tier 3 in terms of the amount. And I would encourage everyone to review those, especially if there is a breach. I mentioned the Federal Trade Commission and noted that they have their own health breach notification rule. And specifically, it requires certain businesses not covered by HIPAA to notify their customers and others if there's a breach of unsecured, individually identifiable electronic health information. So most of the time, people just use protected health information, or PHI, to include what's known as electronic protected health information, or ePHI. So it's important to note that the privacy rule includes all types of protected health information, but the security rule only relates to electronic protected health information. Having said that, throughout the presentation, and throughout the industry, most people just say PHI unless there is a specific reason 
to designate EPHI. Enforcement by the FTC began on February 22nd of 2010. It's also notable that the Federal Trade Commission does have jurisdiction over those HIPAA entities that we mentioned, those covered entities in particular. And in fact, they have fined entities such as CBS, Rite Aid, and Henry Sheen Dental for violations. So a breach notification rule is the requirement of certain businesses not covered by HIPAA. And that's because those entities covered by HIPAA have the HIPAA breach notification rule. But it does not mean that the Federal Trade Commission is exempt from issuing a fine even if HHS issues a fine. So that's something to be conscious of as well if you are a business associate or a covered entity. General HIPAA items. First and foremost, during the pandemic, the HIPAA privacy rule and security rule are still applicable. And it's befuddling to me how many questions there were, to be honest with you, because HIPAA from the outset and HHS and a lot of industry leaders really thought through exemptions and exceptions from HIPAA, such as reporting to a public health entity or law enforcement exceptions, or whistleblower exceptions, which are found at 164.502J1. So there have been exceptions in place all along. The privacy rule has always had an exception for health providers to report certain diseases, as I mentioned, and that's found at 164.512B1. I, and importantly, the law enforcement exception is also under 164.512. The transmission of the patient's information still needs to occur in accordance with the security rules. So even though you have the ability and really the obligation to report certain types of conditions, not only COVID testing, but also STDs are very common and other types of communicable diseases, but it needs to do, it needs to be done in a secure environment. Other exceptions regarding disclosures without a patient's written authorization include disclosures to other providers or third-party payers for purposes of treatment, payment, or healthcare operations to certain family members or others involved in the patient's care or if payment of certain conditions are met, or for government or public safety concerns, if the regulatory requirements are satisfied. I said certain family members because as we are all familiar with, whether we're walking into a Walgreens Minute Clinic or a physician's office or a hospital, we have what's known as the HIPAA authorization form. And there is where you can say, I do not want my information provided to this individual or that individual. And there can be a lot of reasons for that. It could be a former spouse. It could be a family member that you don't want to have access to your information, things of that nature. So covered entities, as well as business associates, who contract with covered entities, for example, those business associates who do claims collection. You really need to ask for that HIPAA authorization 
so that you know who you can and cannot disclose any information to. Regardless of who you disclose information to, you absolutely have to bear in mind the minimum necessary rule, which should be utilized throughout. Other disclosures generally require the patient's consent or written authorization, and that can and does apply to business associates as well. So let's do a quick check on COVID just to make sure everyone is on the same page. As we all should know by now, it was first reported in China in late 2019. From there, it spread primarily through Europe and then globally. This is when the World Health Organization declared a pandemic on March 11, 2020. Subsequently, the President of the United States declared a national emergency on March 13th of 2020. There are a lot of good resources where individuals can go for updates. One is the WHO website, the Situation Report, and I provided the link. Johns Hopkins has a very good site as well. The CDC provides updates and other governmental agencies. So just make sure that you're keeping a pulse on the COVID-19 situation, especially now with the debate and opening and closure of schools and businesses and things of that nature. Common signs of infection, we know what those are and they vary in terms of underlying conditions as well as age being a factor, although no one, including infants, are immune from not only getting COVID, but also unfortunately dying from COVID. Uh, what I wanna emphasize is the last bullet point that is highlighted. So the virus itself is known as the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, which is SARS-CoV-2. The disease or the end disease state is called Coronavirus Disease 2019. Why is this important? I like to remember this in terms of the relationship between HIV and AIDS. So HIV can be described as analogous to the SARS-CoV-2 because it's the underlying virus. The end stage disease of HIV is AIDS. And that's the way to think of the relationship between SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. So if you hear either of those, just appreciate what that relationship is. For most disclosures, again, a covered entity, but also business associates, and subcontractors must make reasonable efforts to limit the information disclosed to that which is the minimum necessary to accomplish the purpose that you're trying to achieve. If you don't need to say more than the person's name, their address, and their birth date, and perhaps their insurance information, then don't say anything more than that. Just keep it to what you need, and that needs to be done across that link of trust, which is known as covered entity, business associate, and subcontractor. Covered entities may rely on representations from a public health authority or other public officials that the requested information is the minimum necessary for the purpose 
when that reliance is reasonable under the circumstances. For example, a covered entity may rely on representations from the CDC that the protective health information requested by the CDC about all patients exposed to or suspected or confirmed have the novel coronavirus is the minimum necessary for the public health purpose. And a lot of times what we've seen is this coming into play on a local level and disclosures to first responders. A lot of first responders were not even asking who in the household had COVID. They just wanted to know if they were going into an environment where someone had tested COVID positive. And while there are universal precautions, which are in fact utilized throughout the healthcare system and in medical situations and have been in place literally for decades, there is heightened protections which are utilized in relation to diseases such as COVID or TB or things of that nature. And it's because of the heightened transmission and susceptibility. So an N95 mask would be an example of that, a full face shield, those hazmat suits that you see people in, all of those double gloving would be considered a heightened precaution. In addition, internally covered entities as well as business associates should apply role-based access policies to limit the access to protected health information to only those workforce members who need it to carry out those duties. And for those of you, whether you're a covered entity, a business associate, or a subcontractor who undergo that annual risk analysis, my clients, we hone in on that very specifically, and we look and we see, okay, who moved into a different position? Who was terminated or who left the company? Did someone move into a role where they don't need as much access, even if it's a promotion? So there are a lot of factors that can lead to role-based access being changed and you need to make sure that your privacy officer and your IT department, typically someone from HR is also involved in that, are on top of this and reviewing it and keeping written documentation on this role-based access. SEC items. This is important because a lot of entities do in fact have Securities and Exchange Commission obligations. Why? Because they're registered with the SEC, either as a fund or as a publicly traded company. They may also be on the OTC exchange or over-the-counter. And that's when you get into certain shares with ADRs. Typically, you find those in play with foreign entities that have a presence in the United States and want to trade securities on our exchange. So that's one example of where you will see a SEC disclosure requirement. Basically, the CF disclosure, this disclosure provides the Division of Corporation Finance's current views regarding disclosures and other security law obligations that companies should consider with respect to COVID-19 and related business and market disruptions. If you have a filing with the SEC, you better make sure that you're noting something. And depending on your industry, 
you need to curtail that to make sure that you're very relevant. Some businesses actually saw an increase revenue, not surprisingly, while others saw a steep decline. It's just important to be conscious of that and make sure that you're making those 8K disclosures if you are a U.S. company on one of our exchanges like the NASDAQ or so forth. Or if you're a foreign entity, you want to make sure that you're filing your 6Ks for material updates as well. Supplemental information, this is important. The CF disclosure guidance represents the views of the Division of Corporation Finance. It's not a rule, regulation, or statement of the Securities and Exchange Commission. However, if you are ever involved in a class action, which in fact can be quite costly for business associates, covered entities, and subcontractors, alike, what you may find is that in a negligence type scenario, this can in fact be used as a standard of care. So just because it's not a rule or a regulation or a statement that is binding, it can be used in a negligence case. A number of existing rules or regulations require disclosure anyhow about the known or reasonable likely effects and the types of risks presented by COVID. And you find those disclosure requirements in the Securities Act of 1933, the Exchange Act of 1934. If you are an advisor, then you have the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 as well as their related rules and regulations and Sarbanes-Oxley. So there's a lot there. It's just being sure that you note COVID disruptions and that you're truthful because 17A violations and 10B5 violations can in fact come into play here, especially because the Treasury issued a lot of those PPP loan payments. So moving on to an HHS OIG bulletin, they published quite a few of these throughout the spring in particular, but we're going to look at this one from March 17, 2020, which is OIG policy statements regarding physicians and other practices that reduce or waive amounts owed by federal health care program beneficiaries for telehealth services during the COVID outbreak. Well, this is important because the anti-kickback statute applies to everyone, not just physicians or healthcare providers. But what they said during this period is that you can, in fact, reduce or waive co-pays or deductibles only during the period of the pandemic, which is still going on. Otherwise, this is an area that is ripe for false claims act liability, and it's something that everyone should be aware of moving forward. HHS coronavirus bulletin, I mentioned that disclosure exception earlier. What's very important here is that in general, except in the limited circumstances, Described elsewhere, not only in the February 2020 bulletin, but in fact in the law itself, the CFRs and the security and privacy rules, affirmative reporting to the media or the public at large about an identifiable patient or the disclosure to the public or media of specific information about treatment of an identifiable patient, such as specific tests, 
assess results or details of a patient's illness may not be done without the patient's written authorization. And this is paramount. And HHS has, in fact, reinforced this. So whether you're a business associate or a covered entity, don't post individual information about a COVID diagnosis on social media. If you are, in fact, a patient and you want to post it on your own social media account, that's very different. It does not put the organization at risk. It's when an organization puts stuff on social media without the patient's written consent, that liability can result. Nonetheless, recognizing the unique circumstances resulting from the COVID-19 outbreak, again, OIG will not subject physicians and other practitioners to OIG administrative sanctions for arrangements that satisfy both of the following conditions. So I kind of jumped here, but it all ties together. First, a physician or other practitioner reduces or waives cost-sharing obligations that a beneficiary may owe for telehealth services furnished consistent with the then applicable coverage and payment rules, and telehealth services are furnished during the time period subject to the COVID-19 declaration. If you are doing telehealth or if you are a business associate who has been engaged by a covered entity during this time, make sure you have that business associate agreement in place and that you and the uh, covered entity are not paying kickbacks to each other. This is the intertwining between telehealth, HIPAA, and the anti-kickback statute, that is not going to be overlooked by OIG. On top of that, if you're selling a bundle of goods that says we're HIPAA compliant and this is what's best for your practice and your patients, Henry Sheen got dinged by the Federal Trade Commission a couple of years ago for falsely stating on their website that they had all of the requisite protections in place for their EHR system. So make sure that you're not making material misstatements to the public that could be detrimentally relied upon. Telehealth versus telecommuting, this is very important. Telecommuting is broader in scope, and it's not only used in healthcare, as we know. It's used across pretty much every single industry. But what's important is that on March 2020, HHS OCR announced that it will waive potential HIPAA penalties for the good faith use of telehealth. And that is the key phrase right there, good faith use. Effective immediately, the exercise of discretion applies to telehealth provided for any reason, regardless of whether telehealth services related to the diagnosis, and treatment of health conditions related to COVID-19. What does that mean? It means A, you can use telehealth for other conditions that are not COVID related. You don't need COVID in order to utilize telehealth. That's prong one. Prong two is that you need to understand that telehealth is a very broad term. It encompasses not only telemedicine, which is that individual communication between a provider and a patient, it extends beyond that into other finance questions and things of that nature. Having said that, you further need to distill for telemedicine whether it was first a telemedicine visit, which means that you are using an interactive 
video type of application, which I'm going to highlight down below. If it is a check-in visit via phone or if it is an e-visit. The latter two are not reimbursed at the same rate. And unless you're using the technology that is required, such as any non-public facing remote communication, such as Apple FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, video chat, or Skype, if you're using those, you're in the clear. However, providers are not only encouraged to introduce the privacy and encryption modes when using applications. I always tell my own clients to make a notice for the patients because on their end, they could be vulnerable. The other thing you need to realize is that if the patient's vulnerable, you're making yourself and potentially your EHR and your system vulnerable too. So it's imperative to utilize a secure system because a breach is a breach and that can be potentially very costly. And notice there is discretion here, but again, a breach, if you're laissez-faire with your application of the requisite technical, administrative, and physical safeguards, there's still a good potential for liability. Non-permissible are public-facing communications such as Facebook Live, Twitch, or TikTok. Safeguarding patient information, this is what I began with because this applies to business associates, subcontractors, covered entities, everyone. In an emergency situation or if you're telecommuting, which is part of a regular business practice, covered entities must continue to implement reasonable safeguards to protect patient information against intentional or unintentional impermissible uses and disclosures. Further, covered entities and their business associates must apply the administrative, physical, and technical safeguards of the HIPAA security rule to electronic protected health information. Well, first and foremost, this should come as a shock to no one, especially because one of the requirements in the security rule is to have what? A business continuity plan, as well as a disaster recovery plan. So a lot of my clients who were situated in Houston, for example, or Florida during Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma a couple of years ago, we had already had a, biz a business continuity plan in place. But what it did when all of their workforce was all of a sudden stranded at home or on the road, they really had to implement what was in those policies and procedures. Thankfully, we had all of the safeguards in place, but it's very beneficial after a major event like a hurricane or like this pandemic to revisit those and step through and say, okay, what went really smooth? What didn't go smooth? And is there any type of technology or another type of communication Free or system that we need to adopt during these types of situations. So all of that are, are things to be conscious of. Key items for business associates. I'm honing in on specific items that I see in my practice on a regular basis. Also, when I've represented entities in front 
of the United States government on a variety of issues. So content of a business associate agreement. First and foremost, you want to make sure you know who you are doing business with, whether a covered entity or a subcontractor. What does that mean? You need to make sure that you're getting reasonable assurances that they are, in fact, HIPAA compliant. I recommend asking five questions of the entity that you're about to engage in a business relationship with and having them attest to it. Five questions. Do you do an annual risk analysis? The second question is, do you train your employees annually? Third, do you have comprehensive policies and procedures? Fourth, do you encrypt the data at rest and in transit? And lastly, do you have business associate agreements in place with the entities that you need to have them in place with? That will give you a good snapshot, and if anyone says no to any of those, I would really do a bit of soul searching and see if that's the type of risk I'm willing to take on. Next, indemnification clauses. First and foremost, I see them a lot in business associate agreements. One, two issues that I see with them are, first, the indemnification clauses are not the same as the clause that the parties have in their main contract, which is typically referred to as an MSA, for example. You don't want to have two contradicting clauses because typically all of these contracts are going to be clumped together, so to speak. Secondly, it's not required by HHS that you have an indemnification clause. And a bonus item that I will throw out there is that oftentimes you'll see entities try and get unilateral indemnification, and I never have my client consent to that. That's not right, because what you could be agreeing to is to pay for a breach, even if it was the other party who caused the breach and the other party says oh it's all on you and we are indemnified that is ridiculous you need to have something that is more mutual and potentially even spells out that in the event of a breach the breaching party is responsible for notification to patients to the media and to the government and that all other costs associated with the breach are the parties own obligations, et cetera, et cetera. Indemnification clauses, I've done a lot of presentations on these. I can talk an hour and a half on those. And if you want to learn more about the nuances, I suggest another CLE. But those are some of the key items to look for. Choice of law, forum, and venue provisions. Another issue, which is similar to indemnification clauses, is does it match the main contract? I can't tell you how many times I've come across situations where in the MSA we have choice of law in one state, then form and venue, and then in the BAA we have a completely different choice of law, form and venue. Just keep it consistent. Pick a, pick a law. along, Pick a law, pick a forum, pick a venue, and just make it consistent. Who notifies HHS and the state agency equivalent? This is something that can be delineated in the business associate agreement, but you absolutely have to notify the covered entity. 
and then it's either expressly stated that the covered entity will notify HHS or after the covered entity has been notified that the breaching party or you, the business associate, will notify HHS, whatever the situation is. It's permissible, but normally it defaults to the covered entity notifying HHS. Who pays for notifications to patients, the media, and the government entities? It depends, and that's something that you want to have spelled out in your contract. And I've seen business associate agreements. Sometimes that is addressed or identified in the indemnification clause. Sometimes it's identified in a separate section of the BAA and then referenced in the indemnification clause. So there's no cookie cutter way to do it. It just depends on the parties and the nature of the contract. Cloud computing, as we know, is becoming more and more pervasive. And what access does the cloud entity have to your data? I always have my business associate and covered entities request the SOC reports from those data centers and any other types of reports that they have. Because a data center or a cloud entity is, in fact, either a business associate or a subcontractor, depending on where they are in the link of trust. So you want to make sure that you understand how much access that cloud entity has to your data. You also want to understand and meet with IT to find out whether you're using a platform as a service, an infrastructure as a service, or software as a service, because all of those have different levels of control associated with the end user and what the entity they're contracting with or utilizing has. So that's very important. Does the cloud company encrypt in at least 256-bit encryption and is a BAA signed? All very important. And initially, a lot of the large companies were very reluctant to sign a BAA and have you sign an NDA and hand over their soft reports, which are redacted anyhow, by the way, but at least they do give you a good faith basis that you are in fact HIPAA compliant. And now that has become the norm that a BAA is in fact signed or Microsoft does have a statement on their website. So all of that's very important. Parents and subsidiaries, I started with this at the beginning with that lifespan structure, and that cannot be emphasized enough. What is the corporate structure that you're dealing with? Who are you entering into an agreement with? If you're entering into an agreement with a subsidiary, did you check and see that they have a BAA in place with their parent company? Things of that nature. Again, it depends how much ownership and control the parent company may be exercising and what information is sent to them. But typically, if you think about it in a healthcare setting, a major health system, right, that's nationwide and has a corporate headquarters, they are going to be getting claim data from all their different individual acute care hospitals or whatever their providers are. So you want to make sure that things are in place there. And is the hybrid covered entity in play or is it two distinct corporate entities that you're contracting with? Very important. On April 21st of 2020, CMS made an announcement. And for those of you who are not familiar with the 21st Century Cures Act, it is definitely one to become familiar with because the interoperability and patient access final rules came out. And there were two separate 
final rules, one through ONC and the other one through CMS. Now, the final rule was, in fact, displayed in the Federal Register on May 1st of 2020, and you really need to go and look at the website to see if there's any moving in terms of implementation dates, because with COVID still in effect, you really could see that. But basically, what we have here is an effective date uh, 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. Compliance is six months. That's what they said, but in light of the previous slide, and if you go to these websites, what you're going to find is now that's been extended outwardly for 12 months. The implementation of these provisions will advance interoperability and support the access, exchange, and use of electronic health information. The role also finalizes certain modifications to the 2015 edition health IT certification criteria and program in additional ways to advance the interoperability, enhance health IT certification, and reduce burden and cost. So what are some at risks? Well, if you're a business associate, you might actually be one to an app developer, or you could be the app developer who is in privy of contract with the covered entity. So what are some key issues? Well, the chief worry isn't about thieves getting their hands on lost or stolen devices because everyone should be encrypting their devices and having passwords on their devices, but the ease with which companies can gain access to personal information stored in your phone. That is through an app, and that's something that if you're an app developer, you better make sure that you are complying with all of the High Tech Act and the security rules safeguards. This was, these next three slides, in fact, reflect a series of questions and answers that HHS put out in terms of healthcare apps, and this came out last year in 2019, in the summer of 2019. So what's important here is when is a covered entity liable? Well, if the app was developed for or provided by or on behalf of the covered entity and thus creates, receives, maintains, or transmits ePHI on behalf of the covered entity, then the covered entity could be liable under the HIPAA rules for a subsequent impermissible disclosure because of the business associate relationship between the covered entity and the app developer. FYI, this is a potential area that we could see for false claims act liability. When you start looking at cases such as e-clinical work, where the business associate EHR system really lied to the government and a lot of providers detrimentally relied upon their assertions of being compliant, that was problematic, and they were fined over $151 million. Subsequently, Greenway was fined over $50 million for similar uh, indiscretions, as I'll say, in terms of lying to the government and getting millions of dollars in return. So that's something that, as an app developer, you really want to be conscious of. For example, if the individual selects an app that the covered healthcare provider uses to provide services to individuals involving ePHI, the healthcare provider may be subject to liability under the HIPAA rules if the app is impermissibly disclosed and ePHI is received. 
Well, a business associate could also be liable. And I mentioned False Claims Act. We also earlier mentioned OCR, HIPAA fines, and yes, they have fined business associates. But an area that you cannot overlook is potential class action liability. And I recently wrote on this for physicians' practice, so feel free to Google that and that article will come up. But really, class actions like the one we saw in Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, that settled for $115 million. And then Anthem also received an OCR fine of $16 million. And more recently, there was a case filed in Florida against a Florida orthopedic clinic, one of the largest in Florida, for a HIPAA breach as well. So a lot of liability can come from a lot of angles that, and you really want to make sure that you're addressing all of those issues. So what liability does a covered entity face? Well, basically if it requests that a patient use a specific app, and I always use Cleveland Clinic as an example because I go to Cleveland Clinic and they have MyChart. So whether you do your MyChart app or MyChart on Line. That's something that Cleveland Clinic is saying, hey, if you want your PHI, if you want access, if you want to communicate with your provider, you need to use this. It's good because they have control over it, but they also made sure that everything was hopefully secure whenever this was done. An individual may request that their unencrypted ePHI be transmitted to an app as a matter of convenience. This one sentence alone is what ties this back into the 21st Century Cures Act and that ONC and CMS final rule that I mentioned earlier. And I did a webinar for First Healthcare Compliance on that very issue in May of 2020. So if you're interested in a deep dive into that issue, then I recommend reviewing that particular uh, webinar. Where an individual directs a covered entity to send ePHI to a designated app. Does a covered entity's electronic health information developer bear HIPAA liability? After completing the transmission of ePHI to the app on behalf of the covered entity. This is the favorite lawyer answer. It depends on the relationship, if any, between the covered entity, the EHR system developer, and the app chosen by the individual to receive the ePHI. Basically, as we know, a business associate relationship exists if an entity creates, receives, maintains, or transmits. EPHI on behalf of a covered entity directly or through another business associate to cover out the covered function. Again, I want to reiterate this disclosure to the media. Just don't do it if it's about an individual patient. If you want to do that or if a patient is asking for that to be done in conjunction with the covered entity or a business associate, make sure that you get a written authorization. So as we come towards the end of the presentation and I open the floor up for some questions, I just want to hit on compliance and risk mitigation. Compliance with the privacy rule and security rules is and the director of OCR in a February 3rd, 2020 interview article with Law 360 stated there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. So 
what are the best ways to make sure that your organization doesn't have a lot of low-hanging fruit? Well, first, the five things that I suggested that you put in the attestation are the same five things that you need to hone in on, and that is the adequate annual risk analysis. The second is adequate comprehensive policies and procedures that are reviewed at least annually. Next, you have your business associate agreements in place, making sure that data is encrypted at rest and in transit, and making sure that you have annual HIPAA training. Those are all very important. You want to integrate the respective aspects into the requisite annual HIPAA risk analysis. That cannot be understated, and OCR has emphasized that over and over again. Keep a list of business associates with dates and obtain reasonable assurances of compliance from the other party to the contract. Appreciate how HIPAA applies to the coronavirus in a variety of ways. Telecommuting and business continuity is different than telehealth, but even with telehealth, although OCR said we have latitude and we're going to look at good faith use of telehealth and HIPAA, that's what you want to hone in on. Because even though you might say, oh, we had to make a transition quick, well, yeah, telehealth was a little different because previously you had to go to a specific spot, use specific software, et cetera, et cetera. But it means now that if you're using telehealth that you have all of those safeguards in place because it could make your phone susceptible to your personal data as well as your information technology system. So with that, I'm going to turn the floor back over to Catherine and see if there are any questions. But I wanted to thank everyone for their time and attention today and also for healthcare compliance as always. It's my pleasure and privilege to collaborate with you. Thank you, Rachel, so much. That was just very, very informative. So very much appreciate that. That was um, quite concise and full of information. Thank you. Welcome. Well, we do have some uh, questions here. So um, the first one is, are business associates subject to HIPAA penalties? That's a, that's a very good question. Yes, they are in fact subject to HIPAA penalties. And as I mentioned early on, it really became expressed. And back in 2013, I saw, and I know the healthcare compliance industry in general saw a lot of entities hitting the panic button because that final omnibus rule expressly states liability for covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors. Okay. Um, so if, if the business associate is subject to penalty, um, would both the business associate and the, um, the healthcare facility, would they both be subject to fines in a, in an incident? Is that what would happen, for example? Uh, not necessarily. In my experience, not necessarily. It depends on the safeguards that were in place by both the covered entity and the business associate. If the business associate was the cause of the breach, then they have to identify the different covered entities that they have a relationship with. And then from there, OCR will send out a separate letter to the covered entity and they have to come up with responses similar to those 
of a business associate. However, they might have had all the requisite safeguards in place. If the breach was totally on the business associate, then there may not be liability for the covered entity as long as all the safeguards were in place. Hmm. Okay. So if you were to give business associates and subcontractors one item that they need to do annually, what would it be? Annual risk analysis, because all technical and administrative and physical safeguards would be identified and corrected or something else, or what would you, what would you recommend? Like what would, um, you know, that would be an example, but what, what would you, what do, what do you think, you know, um, what would, you know, I mean, there's 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 a lot of different types of things. What what do you recommend um, for business associates and subcontractors? What what type of thing? If you could, well, of, all, of all the different types of things. Catherine, you nailed it. It is the risk analysis. And for those of us who do them, I actually do them. Or if you have ever looked through what is required, there are a lot of line items that address every single technical administrative and physical safeguard requirements. So by doing that annually, what you see is where your gaps are. And what's fascinating to me is that oftentimes there's an ebb and flow within organizations. So they'll get up to speed on gaps for one year, but then something will kind of come off their radar. And that's why that risk analysis is so key. Another reason it's so key is that as we all know, technology is changing and the cyber criminals are becoming more and more crafty and aggressive in terms of their attacks. And because of that, you need to make sure that you're keeping up with technology and evaluating it and making sure that things are working properly or if there's a technology upgrade that needs to be made. So that is the number one item, and that's no different than what the director of OCR said in that Law 360 article. A risk analysis will enable you to identify every single gap that needs to be corrected, and as part of that, you can look and say, oh, we had training company-wide in September of 2020. We're coming up on that again. We need to contact our vendor or our lawyer who comes in or our compliance group who does our annual HIPAA training because as we saw even this year already we saw that increase in cyber attacks and then we have COVID to deal with. So there are nuances to this year's training that I've added for my clients that I didn't add in the past. So that's why that risk analysis is key because it hits on everything. Okay. So um what would be your what would be your second bit of advice? So if they if that would be your Number one item, what would what would you say would be maybe number two? The policies and procedures. Because by having comprehensive policies and procedures, all of those technical, administrative, and physical safeguards are in fact or should be defined in those policies and procedures. And what that enables a business associate and covered entity to do as I mentioned earlier, is to say, are these effective? Do we need to revise these? Are there new laws? Have we looked at our role-based access this year? Are there too many people who have access to the PHI? Things of that nature. So that would be my second. Okay. All right. Okay, we have another question here. Um, is an indemnification provision required in BIAs? 
No, it is not required by law. And in fact, on the HHS website, facts that they do, they state that it's not required. Is it common? Yes, but as I mentioned in the presentation, there are items that you need to make sure you're looking out for so that it does not conflict with the primary contract. Okay, all right. Um, we have a question about class action cases. So um, are class action cases something that should be considered as part of an enterprise risk management program? Absolutely. As I mentioned during the presentation, a good example of this is Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. The fine from HHS was $16 million. The settlement costs were $115 million for the class action that was filed against Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. And that did not even include their cost to defend that class action. That was just a settlement uh, for the case. So you can see right there how costly a class action suit can be. From my perspective, and as you know, I've, I've done plaintiff side of the aisle in different cases, and I've done defense. I do transactional work, and I do compliance, and I represent people in front of the government. So I really see things from a lot of different angles. And one item every organization should be honing in on is what if we get a fine from OCR? What if, what's the range here? The range is typically 50,000 up to 16 million is the highest fine to date. So that's one range. But with class action, start looking at class actions and look at how many have been filed for cybersecurity breaches for the biometrics breaches under laws such as BIPA, which is the biometric law out of Illinois, you start getting in hundreds of millions of dollars. And class action lawyers, and I worked on the BP Deepwater Horizon uh, case, so I, I have some familiarity with this type of case. And what's fascinating is that I, I used to, I'm not sure if I'm pro or con, but the one thing that I can say is that it is a deterrent and it does force companies to correct their behavior in a way that I don't think a, a low fine from the government necessarily does, depending on the size of the organization. Okay. All right. Um, let me see. Should business associates be familiar with the 21st Century Cures Act as well as the ONC and CMS final rules? Absolutely, because if you are the app developer that we talked about during the presentation, then you could fall under that umbrella too. And because there is that potential for that creation, receipt, maintenance, or transmission of PHI, you absolutely want to make sure that you are meeting all of those requirements. Furthermore, in going beyond PIPA, when you start getting into state privacy laws, such as the California Consumer Protection Act, they are they have certain requirements. So you need to think beyond PIPA to personally identifiable information, to what your obligations are in terms of technical, administrative, and physical safeguards in relation to those laws as well. So yes, absolutely, business associates 
should be familiar with the 21st Century Cures Act. Okay. Um, and then one other question, uh, do you have anything or any comments about um, um, business associates having to do with like offshore or offshore contracts, that kind of thing? That is a great question. And ironically, I wrote on that for physician's practice about six years ago, and I've actually handled those contracts for clients. And you're going to get my favorite lawyer answer. It depends. Why does it depend? Because certain states such as Arizona preclude personally identifiable information or PHI from being shipped offshore. And so because of that, you need to make sure that you're reading the state rules. It's not prohibited by HHS. However, what's important to note is that you could be making yourself susceptible to another country's data privacy laws. And as we know with GDPR, those requirements are pretty stringent now. So you really need to think, do I want my data housed outside of the U.S.? Am I going to be open up to more liability? Another issue with business associates in other countries is how do you know that they're HIPAA compliant? Just because they're located outside of the United States doesn't mean that they don't have to comply with HIPAA because you're sending the PHI there. So for my clients, to have offices worldwide, as part of the risk analysis, what I do is review their BAA, and we do a virtual walkthrough that office, wherever it's located, so that I can see firsthand the physical safeguards that they have in place and ask those interview questions just like I would as if they were in the United States. So offshore, can you use it? The answer is it depends if you do use it and a lot of entities do in order to reduce costs. Make sure that you're dealing with a reputable entity and that you've verified that. Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any other words of advice or anything that you'd like to leave with us today? No, other than I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy, and I look forward to collaborating with you next time, Catherine. Me too. Me too. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. Always enjoy um, doing webinars together with you, Rachel. So thank you so much. Very much appreciate it. You are welcome. All right. Well, thank you also, attendees. Please use the contact information on the screen for any questions. And if you send us any um, questions later, we'll forward them on to Rachel Rose. Please remember your PACOM and PMI CU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888 543 4778. And thank you for joining us.